0: And welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonico Alyssa, can you see what I'm wearing today? Erin, you're a fucking
1: vision today.
0: <laughs> I'm wearing the nap dress that you sent me in the mail. I just was in a nap dress kind of mood, and I gotta say, I think it's a lifestyle for me now.
1: You are ethereal. <laughs> <laughs> it was packed in my hospital
0: bag drawer area because I'm psychotic and I'm like, I might have to go to the hospital now, but, um, (laughs) no, I'm going to wear it between now and when I actually have to go to the hospital just because it's like too good to not to not wear all the time.
1: I mean, you're flowers on flowers right now, and you're not too
0: floral. No, no, I could use a floral hat, actually, (laughs) to go along with this. And then you would be ready for the Easter parade. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I want to watch that movie. (laughs) This week, we're joined by Dawn Hucklebridge, Jen Statsky, and Grace Parajani to tackle the following questions. When did everybody become experts on Afghanistan. Just how close are we to getting paid family leave in the U.S., and what can you do to get it across the finish line? What does HBO Max's Hacks teach us about work-life balance? And what can an in-season tomato do for your happiness levels? All this and more right now. Okay, a lot of news this week. Most of it not good, as news tends to be. Mm. But here's something that I learned this week, Alyssa. Did you know that America is the world's leading producer of experts? Just experts. Top export. Top export. We export our experts. It's true. We've got amber waves of both grain and people who suddenly know everything there is to know about complicated news topics that require years of study to understand. Like Remember last year, everyone became an epidemiologist? Just really quick. I just... On Facebook. On Facebook. (laughs) And um, there was a period of time where a lot of people were um, experts on the state of Georgia, which I found really interesting. Um, Right. I
1: forgot about that. Jeez.
0: Climate change. A lot of people are experts on climate change, uh, depending on what news story is happening. Now, um, I've just noticed a ton
1: of Afghanistan experts just... You know, people geopolitical experts who only weeks ago were explaining recombinant DNA and other things. yeah, it's it's truly a
0: miracle, and we are a country of gentlemen scholars. Um, okay, so I'm laying it on kind of thick right now, but this week, you know, as we've discussed over text, as the Taliban yeah. took Afghanistan, uh, like it was a basket of free zucchini in a teacher's lounge. Um, I watched it from far away. Like almost all Americans watched it from far away. Perfect. Same and, here. Same uh, here. I personally found all the pontificating about what happened and why to kind of reek of bullshit. So, Alyssa, you have actually been to Afghanistan um, and you've actually mm-hmm. participated in, in strategic talks on Afghanistan. Um, how do people tell the difference between – useful information on what's going on over there and
1: bullshit that they
0: can just ignore.
1: So here's the thing, Aaron, as someone who has been to Afghanistan a couple times, um, even I am like I'm not like no one should listen to me. This has always been my thing. I did a I did a talk a couple of years ago at a fancy Ivy League school and some uh, it was a woman asked me, uh, "Can you explain the president's approach to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and it, why his position in Iran?" Da 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 da. And I was like, "Girl, you get five minutes with me, and this is what you're asking. I'm not answering your question because I am not an expert." And so I think that I wish everyone was just delightfully self aware as I am, uh, but they're not. And so we have seen so many. Hot takes on Twitter. We have seen pundits, okay, flash, news flash. Pundits aren't experts. And I wish that news anchors, in an effort to fill time on their shows, didn't treat pundits as experts in Middle East policy. And um, here's my view right now, uh, the people I am listening to are the people who are there. Uh, Clarissa Ward on CNN is someone who, when I'm really trying to understand, everyone's got a spin, right? We've come to this point in our lives where it's really hard to get information that doesn't have some sort of like political spin, and I don't want that about this. This is this is uh, this is about a nation of people uh, that we should care about, and you know, regardless of, uh, I, I guess I just don't want like pundits' opinions when. They literally didn't even Google the subject matter before they got on. So for me, I am really just listening to people who have been doing this all their lives and are sort of, you know, experts in the region. I've listened to Richard Engel, Clarissa Ward. There are other people. But in the same way that I appreciate when anchors were telling us about COVID, it's like, I'll really just wait for... Anthony Fauci, or Dr. Lena Wen, or Dr. Dara Cass, or Dr. Esther Chu. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm an expert, I'm an expert uh, focused lady, I think, on matters like this.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing that kind of is, it feels like a, an unwinnable, like Kafka-esque rhetorical hellscape is, The fact that I think that the people that understand that our access to information is very limited, despite the the efforts of people like Clarissa Ward and Richard Engel and other people, Afghan journalists who are on the ground there, um, we have very limited access to information. And the people that understand that and that understand that sometimes it's best to say less or take a beat and wait to understand things before. Spouting an opinion. uh, Those people have the wisdom to step out of conversations. Right. But the people that don't understand that they should shut the fuck up, continue to talk. And so conversations and moments like this become dominated by people who don't understand that they
1: should lean out. At this moment, lean all the way out. Also, I have noticed a lot of, you know, a lot of Republicans being booked, right? There's just I just feel like right now we're just getting such fucking garbage in our in our brains from these people. But there are Republicans who are so quick to criticize Joe Biden. Yet they're forgetting that Donald Trump's the one who signed the treaty. Donald Trump did this. The Taliban was supposed to, you know, disavow al-Qaeda. They haven't done that. And so it's like, I, it's all just so not on the fucking level, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just too important. I feel like this and COVID are just two things that are too important to not be on the level about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that it it is like you mentioned
0: that it's hard to find opinions that don't have an agenda behind them right now. And I really struggle with the fact that it's hard to find an analyst or somebody who isn't a reporter, but who can provide context right. who isn't going to give me a full picture of the four by one hundred meter relay of fuck ups. Totally. That was everything that led because George W. Bush fucked up. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama fucked up, you know, Donald Trump fucked up and now there is fucking up happening on Biden's watch. And I just would really love to have people engage honestly, even even if we don't have like all of the information. I think that like the only way to prevent this big of a fuck up again is like an honest engagement with what was a fuck up without without believing that acknowledging mistakes is akin to
1: being weak. No, I couldn't agree more. It's like there's enough blame to go around here. And, you know, there's so much conflation of issues like saying that to the rest of the to 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 the layman, it seems like the Biden administration didn't have a plan to get out is not the same as saying we shouldn't have gotten out like mm-hmm. those two things are not the same and I feel like anyone who is it's so disingenuous when you're trying to make that point and people are like well what you should we should have stayed for another five years another 20 years it's like no you fucking asshole shut the fuck up I'm just saying mm-hmm. that when you take out 2,500 troops and have to send back 6,000 it seems like something went awry and we're just curious what happened
0: <laughs> right exactly and then in the middle of the these conversations what's getting lost is the humanity of the people of Afghanistan they're going to suffer namely uh women and girls most likely right like the Taliban totally. hasn't done ha- as as of yet we don't know uh what they're doing if they've hurt anybody. Right. You know, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. We haven't heard any news, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. We know how they treated women and girls in the 90s. And we know that there are people that worked for and alongside the U.S. military in Afghanistan that are stuck there right now, that who have live, their lives are in danger because of like bureaucratic backlogs of paperwork. And um, I just, I find that the, the rush to point fingers and assign blame versus understanding the complexity of the situation, which are two different things. And solving the problem. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but those, that kind of like, I don't know, blame dick measuring contests, everyone saying they were the ones who were correct. It's like, who fucking cares? People's lives are on the line and uh, we lose the people in trying to preserve egos and to preserve yeah. like the, the rightness and, and to Monday morning quarterback it. So that that's the thing that makes me, I mean, look, this is a kind of strange conversation for us to have on a podcast about the news, but this is just the way that you and I have both interacted with this story, it has been like yeah. I felt terrible and helpless watching the images coming out of Afghanistan. I also feel terrible and helpless watching people having like a dumb, you know, slap fight. About whose fault this is, like right? I, I just, I, I would really love for us to open our doors to people in Afghanistan who we created a, an untenable situation for them, and then just abandon them. I would love to be able to welcome more of them to this country, and I don't know what needs to happen in order for that to work out.
1: No, but you know, this is this is these are the questions. I hope that we will get answers to. Soon when everyone stops being Mm -hmm. like, it's your fault. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Uh, When Mm -hmm. it's like not the people who are suffering's fault, which is usually Mm -hmm. the way it fucking goes. So,
0: yeah, I just I think you and I both just uh, advise a little bit of patience, uh, literacy, media literacy and understanding around this topic. Yeah. And um, I'm grateful for all the people who haven't declared themselves Afghanistan experts this week um,
1: because I'm certainly not. And uh, I, I am not, Erin. That's what makes us women, is that we can say we're not experts and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I need more information in order to formulate an opinion.
0: And that is a, that is a punditry sin, but that's how I feel about this. Um, here's something I don't need more information on to form an opinion about. <laughs> Like that segue? That was fucking brilliant. Thank you. It's Greg Abbott, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who tested positive for COVID this week. um, He's asymptomatic, uh, but nonetheless is received, and he's vaccinated, Mm -hmm. and he's nonetheless receiving monoclonal antibody treatment, um, which has also not been approved by the FDA. Uh, You know, whatever.
1: Let's... (laughs) Are we wasting a monoclonal antibody treatment on the governor of Texas? Is he really that important? Are the people he was at the maskless event with also getting such treatment? And are they all getting tested? And are they doing contact tracing? And uh, Aaron, he's exhausting. The state of Texas is so exhausting. Sorry, Texans. I love you. But your government, it's a bitch who can't govern.
0: Yeah, he is among the... Bitches least able to govern. He's when I saw that he was positive for COVID. My first thought was like, yeah, he fucked around and found out, right? And at, and like as callous as it makes me feel, like we've discussed on this show recently, when I read about like a right wing radio host fucking around and finding out, I kind of don't have any sympathy left for people who have been.
1: Spreading COVID misinformation. It's not because you know what, Aaron? Here's the thing is that this isn't going to be a moment of self-reflection for him, right? This is not going to be like he's not sitting in the governor's mansion right now getting his Regeneron, whatever the fuck it is he's getting and saying, you know what? I am a fortunate person and I had the vaccine. I got a breakthrough case. I'm like prophylactically, I guess, getting this Regeneron. And you know what? I give a shit about all those kids going back to school and making sure because we won't have enough Regeneron for them. I don't even know if kids can fucking get it, but you know my point. And I'm going to make sure that I use every, every, uh, bit of power I have to make sure that these kids can go back to school safely. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's having that moment of reflection. He's just like fucking sitting in the governor's mansion, getting his, you know, antibody treatment being like, yeah, fucking no masks anywhere. Yeah.
0: I mean, the thing is that the hardest people to teach a lesson to are stupid assholes. And unfortunately, stupid assholes are the ones that most need to learn their lesson. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, I, um, I sometimes read this, this subreddit called leopards ate my face. <laughs> it is, uh, it is, I think that, that, well, the name of it is based on that tweet that went viral. Uh, right after the 2016 election, where it said, I never thought the leopards would eat my face, says the lady who voted for the leopards eating face party. Um, (laughs) It's basically about people who advocated for uh, specific policies or voted for specific candidates, having bad outcomes in their own lives as a result of their political actions. And that, that forum is just wall to wall people who spread anti-vax misinformation being hospitalized with COVID. It is almost overwhelming. Um, there are so many right-wing radio hosts that have gotten it and are now on ventilators. Uh, a Catholic church official who had said that nobody should take the vaccine because of uh, because they use like fetal they used fetal Ugh. lines to develop it now on a ventilator. Uh, You know, there's all these people who, and it's just like, no, nobody is capable of learning their lesson. You know, right now, uh, Florida, Louisiana, Hawaii, Oregon, and Mississippi all uh, broke records for their seven day averages of new COVID cases on Sunday. Um, Louisiana has 126 cases per 100,000 individuals as of Sunday, which is more than three times the national average. They're out of like ICU beds in Mississippi and Alabama. They're almost out in Texas. People who have regular ass emergencies can't get into the emergency room because COVID patients are sucking up resources. And, you know, I... uh, I, I, I kind of think like Greg Abbott is one of the the chief architects of this, and he'll go down in history as as one of the worst offenders in proliferating what is happening right now. I mean, I guess that's the only solace I have is like his
1: legacy is going to be a plague rat. Essentially, he is a, he and he, he and his his bro Ron DeSantis are like the king plague rats.
0: Yeah, I mean. I could see Ron DeSantis cartoonified in a political cartoon as a rat too.
1: He's like kind of a ratty looking guy. He is. They, but I mean, it's it's not a it's not a. Uh, I don't even know, Aaron. It's just a fucking bummer. Yeah, he's um,
0: he's just got rat vibes. They both got rat vibes. Anyway, um, okay. Do we have any toasts and roasts this week? Let's move on to something a little bit more fun.
1: I think there's just like one kind of like super groovy upbeat toast. Oh, okay. Let's get into it. Okay. Aaron, did you see a tweet yesterday that gave you like any level of joy? Yes, I did. And I think we saw the same tweet. And what was that tweet? That
0: was a tweet from uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, the tweet- Mayor Pete, Secretary Pete now, right? Secretary Pete. um, Secretary Pete tweeted, For some time, Chastin and I have wanted to grow our family. We're overjoyed to share that we've become parents. The process isn't done yet, and we're thankful for the love, support, and respect for our privacy that has been offered to us. We can't wait to share more soon. They're adopting. That's-
1: It is so, like- my heart was warm. I mean, I just like, I can't wait to see baby Bjorns on those two. Oh, yes, absolutely. That is going to be adorable. And I hope that
0: uh, when, the ba- when their baby is here, when their child is here, um, they're comfortable sharing some of that joy publicly because I think the public would really... Could use a little bit of joy,
1: and you know what? This kid is so lucky because everyone has now learned how to say edge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that kid is not going to have oh, a problem at all. They've paved
0: the way, baby. Boot edge edge. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, and I didn't think about that. Um, but I can't. I can't wait to learn more about their little family. They seem great and happy, and they're both going to be great dads. Totally. Okay, we have to take a break, but when we come back an interview with the director of Paid Leave for All. And welcome back. Today we are excited to chat with Don Hucklebridge, director of Paid Leave for All, which is an organization whose purpose is getting American workers a sustainable paid leave policy. Seems like it shouldn't be complicated, but it has been. Did you know that the only countries in the world without a paid leave policy are the U.S. and Papua New Guinea? That seems... Bad. Uh, Dawn, by the way, has degrees from the London School of Economics and Northwestern University. Heard of both of them. Dawn, welcome to Hysteria. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, for our listeners who aren't already familiar with you and Paid Leave for All, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as director and what the mission of PLFA is?
2: Absolutely. So yes, uh, Paid Leave for All is the national campaign of now more than 25 organizations leading the fight for paid family and medical leave for every working person in this country. So I have the great honor of trying to sort of shepherd all these organizations, come up with a strategy that aligns our resources, our assets, make sure that we're not stepping on each other's toes, that in this critical moment where we think we can finally get this law passed, that we're bringing all of our, our strengths to bear and that we're working in concert and hopefully soon getting it done.
1: What was paid family leave for all hoping to see in Biden's infrastructure bill? And how do you feel about the bill in its current form?
2: So what's interesting to say is that you hear a lot of this like this is infrastructure. This is infrastructure. Okay, we can argue over sort of semantics. But what's important to know is that care policies like paid leave are just as important for enabling people to work as roads and bridges Um, And also something that's interesting is that I am fully in support of hard infrastructure, and and my dad's an engineer. I know how important these things are. But 90% of jobs from hard infrastructure will go to men. And we've just lived through a crisis that has had a unique and disproportionate impact on women and caregivers, particularly women of color. So there is really no recovery. There is no long-term growth. There is no remaining a competitive force in this world if we don't finally catch up and pass some of these economic policies that the rest of the world has. So um, would have loved to have seen paid leave and other policies in this one bipartisan bill. But I think the important thing is we have it in the budget resolution. There's a commitment from the White House, a proposal in Congress, and a commitment from the Speaker that infrastructure, the, the bipartisan bill, and the budget resolution must pass together. And so that's that's what we're fighting for, and we think it will happen before the end of the year.
1: People talk a lot about leave for parents, but can you talk about what's in the bill for people who don't have kids, ask the woman without kids? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. That's what you hear the most about, right, is moms and babies. And that's, I'm a mom, I have a baby, it's important, but- this pandemic also showed us that any one of us—I or I should say—it reminded us—is one diagnosis away from a crisis. Any one of us can get injured. All of our parents will get ill and age. You know, there's going to be unforeseen transitions both you know, joyful and heartbreaking throughout each of our lives. And each of us is going to need to give and receive care. So this is a common sense policy that we should have had years ago. And I think, um, you know, COVID just put it under this big magnifying glass of what a failure this has been and how overdue this policy is. So this is a super popular policy, obviously.
0: Why do you think there remains opposition to this Seemingly nonpartisan issue. It's an issue that your organization refers to as like a supermajority issue. Um, very few people will actually get behind a microphone and stand against this, yet there are certainly people trying to keep things the way they are. So, what special interests oppose paid leave, and what members of Congress have led the fight? Uh, for families on
2: this issue? Oh, So there's a long history. We have so many great sort of champions who've who've been behind this issue for years. The co-sponsors of the Family Act, of course, Congressman Rosa DeLauro, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, um, Patty Murray, and then all kinds of new champions who've jumped in. Like the leaders, um, both Schumer and Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi are totally behind this. Uh, Ron Wyden in Oregon, um, Ayanna Pressley. I mean, this is something that truly everyone should be able to get behind. Uh, I think... In the past, there's been some opposition because of the idea of raising taxes. One important thing to note is that the proposal on the table right now actually does not raise taxes on anyone. You know, Biden's made this tax pledge. Anyone making under $400,000 isn't going to pay a penny more. So this is something that will be funded by the federal government, a direct benefit to workers, and it would only be a support for families, workers, and businesses, particularly small businesses. So, you know, I think there's some people who... um, I still want to talk about the role of government and spending. And I think these are all circular arguments that are just not resonating anymore. And this is something we can't afford not to invest in. Families lose over $20 billion a year in this country because of a lack of paid leave. And we know that if we passed it with some other related care policies, that it would actually yield millions of jobs, billions in wages, and trillions in GDP. So um, I frankly think there's no opposition left.
1: Don, one of your partners, Amy Jo Hutchinson of Moms Rising, said recently, "You aren't allowed to lift anything heavier than your newborn for six weeks after a C-section. You aren't allowed to drive yet. Women are made to return to work so they can financially survive." For context, for our listeners, can you explain? Can you explain how this is not actually radically progressive, and where in the world? As, as Aaron sort of alluded to before, where in the world the U.S. ranks in taking care of its people?
2: I, I actually, we tweeted that recently because it's such, it, it just hits you that we have, we talk about family values in this country. We talk about being there for the people we love. We talk about parenthood and family. And we don't have the policies, the simple common sense policies that enable you to do that. Um, so absolutely, you know, we say that women should breastfeed for six months, we say that women with a C-section shouldn't lift anything, shouldn't drive, shouldn't be able to get to work. And we live in a world now where pretty much everyone needs to be working, you know, needs to be in the formal economy. So this is just, we're behind, we're behind the curve. Um, we are one of, as Aaron said earlier, we are one of the only countries in the world, it's us in Papua New Guinea, who have no form of paid leave for its workers. And this was something we needed, as I said, years ago, but now we just, we cannot wait anymore. We can't afford the cost of inaction.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alyssa and I were actually texting about this earlier before we talked to you. And I can't imagine how hard it would be for somebody that doesn't have a partner who can help them out after having a C-section. Like the idea of a person surviving as a single mother, Alyssa was saying that she helped a friend go to the doctor because it was... So impossible. Um, I also have read that, like, it's not legal for dog breeders to separate dogs and puppies before eight weeks. And yet there is absolutely no law protecting new moms. I think it's just it's mind blowing to me.
2: It's it's absolutely mind blowing. I mean, absolutely. I think it shows we have more appreciation and value of of pets, animals than we do of, of people giving birth in this country. It's a whole other, you know, that could be, I could go on for hours about that, but absolutely. And it's just atrocious. And I think um, this is something, as I said, it's been a crisis for so long. And my hope is that right now it's been so magnified during this pandemic and this crisis that people realize we have an opportunity to finally get this done and to catch up with the rest of the world and we cannot miss the opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're talking about right now being a prime opportunity um, to get this done. Um, I know it's like Right now, we're, we're almost there. What can our listeners do right now to get involved and get this across the finish line? And um, do you think we'll succeed this time?
2: I do think we'll succeed. I think we have, it's, uh, you know, all the stars are aligned. I, I wish they'd been aligned a long time ago. But I think this is the moment where I think there's a new understanding and appreciation of the urgency and the value of, of paid leave in this issue, how it touches every single one of us. Uh, I also think that we have, as I said, this you know historic commitment from the White House, supporting Congress, unprecedented support, a chorus of supporters in the business community and beyond. And I think now we have a path through budget reconciliation. I think it's going to happen. And I think... We need everyone else to get involved though. So you can go to our website, paidlyforall.org. We have one button clicked, uh, take action. Within a few seconds, you can contact your members of Congress, your senators. You can call them, you should meet with them, go to their town halls, Um, make sure that they're listening to your voice, that this is something that cannot wait. It is as important as I said, if not more than roads and bridges as we come out of this crisis and try to really recover and have long-term growth. And make sure that we're taking care of people, particularly the people who have carried us through this pandemic. As I said, women, caregivers, low wage workers, essential workers, people of color. This is something that if we protect each other, we should have learned it protects all of us. So, yes, please um, make your voice heard. Follow us on Twitter. Hashtag paid leave for all of those things. And um, come along Mm -hmm. for the ride. Yeah, I mean, get on or or watch it
0: drive away, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Um, Dawn, thank you so much for joining us uh, during this very crucial moment for paid leave. And uh, obviously, we're going to be keeping close tabs on this and, and really hope it goes our way. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back. We have reached the part of the show where Alyssa and I are joined by two other women to talk about a topic that is on all four of our minds. Um, You know, Alyssa, I know in your book you talk about how, or your first book, you talk about kind of the feeling of leaving the White House when you left the White House. Um, Did you feel like enmeshed with your job at that point?
1: Like your job was you and you were your job? I mean, in that very moment... I'm not sure that it had hit me, but it definitely hit me by that Monday. I was like, I am nobody. I have nothing left. I am just a series of HGTV reruns right now.
0: <laughs> I mean, we spend so much time at our jobs that it's hard not to feel like our identity is tangled up in them.
1: Right. And, and this is a whole different world than it even was like 15 years ago. I mean, now it's like you have your black bear... Blackberry, Jesus Christ. I'm still so fucking old. You know, it's, it's, you have your devices, you have your laptop, your iPad, everything that you, you can never leave it behind. So I think it's even worse than ever.
0: Yeah. It's even hard to, to like put your phone down and go into another room sometimes, especially if you're expecting a work email, even if it's at like the end of the day on a Friday where it's like nobody in their right mind would expect you to get it and respond right away. But anyway, I want to bring in our first panelist, which is known to everybody who listens to Hysteria. She's a writer, activist, actress, and an all-caps texter, Grace Parajani. Hi.
3: I I love the all-caps texting. Uh, I do realize that I overuse it, and I also overuse um, exclamation points. You do? Yeah, I do. Why, why do you think that is? Um, honestly, I think that I I want to express a level of enthusiasm for everybody that I'm communicating with, and it ends up being uh, a little, little bit overboard, a little bit overboard.
0: So here is a question. So Alyssa and I were talking about being like enmeshed in our jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you ever find that your personal preferences to like include all caps and exclamation points like bleeds into the way you communicate over professional
3: like... You know, over professional like channels? A hundred percent. I think that I've been described in writers' rooms as like the 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 room cheerleader. And (laughs) Oh, I can't picture that at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally in keeping with the way that I approach being uh yeah, being being a writer. I go into it with like, okay, I want everyone to feel like their contributions are really worthwhile and I want everyone to feel like included. And you know, writers' rooms are such like inclusive small spaces anyway. There's only like eight to ten of us in every room. So you really notice if somebody is not getting like their, their, their deuce. So, um, yeah, I would say that my texting habits absolutely reflect what I do professionally. Wow.
0: That's, that's so, um, that's so interesting because I've never been in a room like this, but I've heard that writer's rooms can sometimes get very proprietary and competitive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's really great that there's like this kind of angel of all caps in there being like everybody, <laughs> everybody participate.
3: You are worthwhile. You are (laughs) worthy of being here. And I like your jokes. Yeah. It's a lot of that. Yeah.
0: That's a very like female way of communicating. And I hate to, I hate, I'm stereotyping, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying it is a way that people
3: have like the tendency. I'm not saying that every woman is like this or every man is not, but well, you know, I think that that may be part of where this comes from. A big part of it is my my natural personality, and I think it was going to happen no matter what. But I also think that there's kind of an expectation as one of the few women in the room that you bring a certain, a specific type of energy to the room, just like you would in any other industry or other profession. There are certain expectations that women bring, you know, positivity that women bring a kind of maternal um, warmth that women bring, uh, you know, s- support in ways that men don't necessarily they're not necessarily expected to bring that. So part of it might be me filling a role that I feel like I'm expected mm-hmm. to bring.
0: Yeah, we're, you know, all the world's a stage and we're are merely players. <laughs> Today, we're delighted to welcome as our fourth panelist, Jen Statsky. Jen is the co-creator of the show Hacks, which was nominated for 15 Emmys this year, including Outstanding Comedy Series. Jen, uh, first question How does it feel to know that you could go for the next seven years without an Emmy nomination and still have averaged being nominated for two (laughs) Emmys a year?
4: it's it's good i i guess i'll t- i'll take a vacation uh that that sounds great that's a good good average when you put it that yep. way actually i'm gonna start putting it that way myself. averaging Thank two
0: emmys per year has not worked in the last seven i mean years. honestly
4: averaging one every like 10 years is pretty good so i think i'm good until the grade <laughs> yes
0: yeah, so you can live to be over 150 years old and you will still <laughs> <laughs>
3: set. you're Perfect. still gonna be doing i oh
0: uh, congratulations <laughs> on hacks by the way it's so, so good. I loved it. Oh, thanks. I think, thanks so I think much. everybody here loved Hacks. We all loved
3: it's, it. Jen, it's amazing. Oh. It is. It is. It is oh, it's just one you. of the best things to ever uh, happen on television. I fucking love it. It was oh my gosh. so oh good. My gosh. So good.
4: That's so nice. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you Yeah,
3: guys, I don't, so. I don't thank laugh you. out
0: loud at TV very much, but I laughed out loud at Hacks. I laughed when the guy killed himself. Oh. What does that say about me?
4: <laughs> um, That's great. I love that. I have not heard that reaction yet, so I love it that. It was just so unexpected. I mean, it was like
0: kind of building to something terrible because it's like, what's going on? What's going on? And then when that was the terrible thing, it was like, <laughs>
4: <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I kind of thought a lot of people would be like, oh, I saw it coming. I guess that. But it didn't seem like many people did. But then when they like rewatched it, they were like, OK, there's some there's some clues here. Um, but I love that you laughed out loud at it.
0: Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well now I'm self-conscious. No, I'm not. I would never be <laughs> self-conscious about laughing about that. Um, they're not real people. They're fake people. Good point. Um, yeah. so, uh, hacks among other large topics explores how like for artists and creatives, your job is tangled up with your identity. So just as a creative, are you ever able to take a real vacation from your own brain and if so, how? And if not, do you ever feel the need to? And do issues of, like, self and work separation inform the way you created the characters of Deborah and Ava?
4: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure, like, we've all heard this before, right? That, like, being a writer means always having homework <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for the rest of your life. Yes. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, that's, like, one of the real challenges of being, like, a creative person in in this industry, I think, is that you kind of never feel... Never feel done. You always, there's always something in my brain, whether it's about hacks, this show, like, oh, I gotta figure this out. Or, oh, is this story making sense? Or or even like when you're done with one season, you're like, well, what would the next season be? Um, so you are always kind of dealing with that thing that you're never, I never feel done. And I kind of used to like fight against that early in my career that I'd be like, oh, this is horrible. I always feel like I should be doing more. I hate this. Um, And now it's just kind of like a a gentle hum that accompanies me at all Mm -hmm. time that I just have to deal with that like, I know, oh, I should always be doing, I could always be doing more rather, but it's just kind of like it is what it is at a certain point. There's only so many hours in a day, but yeah, you do have to. Kind of just never, get used to it, never really going away. That there's always more you could be mm-hmm. doing.
0: And were Deborah and Ava and their relationship with work was that sort of based on your experience as a creative that can't separate?
4: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we we've said before, and it's very much true that like kind of the relationship depicted on screen is also very much so the relationship depicted off screen. And that's not to say that Paul and Chia have ever stranded me in the desert, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like. But, but, we very much so one of the things this show is for is is a love letter to creative partnerships and because, for us, for the three of us, and in a broader sense, just coming up in comedy when I did and and starting at u c b and all of my friends kind of we all have worked together, whether it's Broad City or now this, like there's a very like specific language that happens between creative people when they're working together and and for me, it's like the most special thing like my my friend and it it's interesting when all your friends become your work partners that's like a a a tricky thing but it's also like I, my friends are to me the funniest people in the world and, and I just like love not to be saccharine but like I, I love making them laugh and I think they love making me laugh and so very much so Paul, Lucia, and I for a long time now have just like loved collaborating and have a very like specific language I think between the three of us and so we wanted to like depict that on screen that even if there's a personality clash with the characters that gives you conflict in the show, they also like get each other on a certain level that is like so specific and um, a kind of love that is different from romantic or sexual or even friendship. It's like a very specific kind of relationship that we felt we hadn't fully seen explored on screen and we wanted mm-hmm.
3: to. It's like game recognized game is the, <laughs> the way that I describe that relationship which I, I love so much that you see over the course of that season a recognition of each other's talents unfolding. Neither of them really start yeah. understanding each other's talents and by the end they really get each other. I, I thought it was really very, very special. I love that.
0: Thanks. Yeah. It sounds like, um, like you have a really healthy enmeshment with your job and you're comfortable
4: with oh, it. Oh, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what's, what's, know. what's unhealthy about it? Like, can you
0: identify things that are unhealthy that may be informed hacks?
4: Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm definitely trying to not turn this into my therapy session for, for <laughs> listeners, but maybe, maybe let's do it. Maybe that's, you know, I think, I don't know how you guys feel, but, like, I I am very – I'm always very curious about what draws people to this industry and what makes them – and, you know, this is kind of part of the show, too. What what makes someone decide to go into a creative industry and what makes them keep going and not honestly quit because it's so challenging and difficult? Um, And I think, like, for me – there's like a, a, a side of it that's pure and lovely that I can talk about, which is that I was just like a kid who loved watching Nick at night and I loved the Mary Tyler Moore show and I love sitcoms and I have Dick Van Dyke. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it, it informed so much of my childhood. And, and that's kind of, I was like, well, I fell in love with TV and I wanted to write it. And then, but like the other part that is the part I still struggle with today. And I don't know if you guys feel this way is like, there is a, it is so tied to your identity. I can never, it's really hard for me to separate my ability as a writer or like where I am as a writer from like myself as a human. And part of that is like growing up, it was very much so like a coping mechanism. Like I, didn't have the best home life. And so school was this thing that I was like, oh, I'll do well at schools. This would be like, when you don't have the structure, maybe of like a, of a home life, you're like, okay, this will replace that. School will be the thing that gives me like structure and I'll succeed in that and et cetera, et cetera. And then I kind of a little bit, I think transferred that onto career stuff, um, which is motivating in one way, but also sometimes I am like, what, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a very age old conversation of like, what is driving creative people to do what they do? Is it some like, is it sometimes it's the love of it, but also sometimes there is that thing of like, you're trying to fill a, a hole you yeah. are like in, in one way or another. And so it's interesting, because it's both things. Mm-hmm. And depending on the day, one, I can feel good about or the other, I can like bum me out <laughs> and worried that I should be doing something else. I don't know. Do you, Do you guys feel that way?
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like I, sometimes I feel like a blurring between my public self and my private self and that I don't know what is truly mine anymore Yeah, because I've spent so much of my life writing things that involve my personal experience, my personal opinions. Uh, I talk about my life every week as part of my job. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, what, what is private to me now, you know, like what is private, what yeah. is public. And I've always tried to be, you know, honest. <laughs> I mean, journalism is, is honesty. It's telling the truth. Um, and writing essays is being honest about how you see the world and telling the truth. But if you're just honest about everything all the time, you run out of self that is yeah. yours. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. And I think that that's, that's a thing that happens with creative people too, especially women, because I think we're kind of pushed to, operate on ourselves and like use our own guts for like the art that we create Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't know that men have historically been pressured to do. Like Alyssa, your books are so personal and so about your own experiences. Like I wonder if you have felt sort of like you put so much of yourself into your work that like you're a little, you you kind of are a little bit worried that you don't have enough self left if that makes any sense well
1: yeah yeah i mean like when i was doing it at the time i wouldn't have been able to do it without a co-writer because she was really my sounding board lauren was the person who was like no, I think that this is really helpful to people. I think the reason I did it is because I thought in some way, shape, or form, it would be helpful to people to be able to understand. But now it's like, sometimes I'll be online at the grocery store, and someone will start talking to me about, like, fertility, and I was like, wait, what? And I was like, oh, shit, you read my book. Okay, (laughs) and, you know, then you realize, like, it's, I think sometimes we don't realize what a long tail it will have, and that you think at the time you're ready to do it, and you, like, when I when the first book came out and the and the second book had even more sort of like how I feel personally about certain things. And at the time I girded myself and for the couple of months you're ready, but it's then like, you know, five years later when someone's like, Asking you about your personal stuff now that you're like, oh shit, I put that out there. And so now I kind of do have to answer these questions for the rest of my life, which is, which is, uh, which is fine. But you know, the one thing I think I do, I don't talk about my husband that much because that's like his life and that's not my place to Tell you about his ability or not inability to do dishes, um, but you know generally I think that's sort of like where I drew the line so that at least like our relationship and our marriage is private. Um, you know, though sometimes I'm not sure he's read my books all the way through, and someone will ask him a question and he'll be like, "Was that in one of your books?" Like, is that in one of our? Bo- or does the
0: NSA person who is assigned to spy on us are they finding out? Yeah, yeah. Um, Grace, yeah. you're developing. A- a show right now that is like about your family
3: so yeah this has very much been on my mind lately what what those blurred lines are between lived experiences and and things that you create I mean one thing I, I I've been aware of even from the beginning is to make sure that people are aware that this show is inspired by and not based on my family which is like a line that I never really thought too much about before but now I'm like oh I don't want my you know niece to sue me or whatever so not that I <laughs> want that like directly from life but yeah she's I 11 mean,
4: and she's really litigious so. she's (laughs)
3: she's so litigious and she's yeah she's really after it um so yeah I mean it's something I think about because I'm I'm so equally inspired by my family and have uh, you know, these recent lived experiences with my family, especially with, with losing my dad a, a couple of years ago that I did not feel like I would have been capable to uh, write about prior to all this happening to me. So to some extent, there is a beauty in experiencing specific kinds of milestones in one's life that then allows you to write about it. Not to say that, that we have to capitalize on these big milestones that happen to us, whether they're good or bad, but there are turning points in our lives that I, I think create new material for us Uh, That maybe we didn't have before. And, you know, something I think a a lot about, and I'm curious, Jen, if if your experience in comedy is like this, too. I feel like growing up, I thought that you had to be like really tortured in order to be a comedian. Like you had to have all the addictions. You had to have, you know, 12 abortions by the time you're 10 or whatever, like just crazy shit or else you didn't have enough grit to be able to go into comedy and you wouldn't have enough like m- material to to draw from and i feel like maybe in the stand up world there's even some elements of that mm-hmm. now i feel very differently but um and i feel like if anything the slower my life is the fewer things that happen to me the more creative i get to be because i'm not reliant on having to draw from my life um and it's kind of it's been freeing in some ways but i was curious Jen if that's an experience that you felt and if there's been a shift also in the last like maybe 10 years. Or yeah.
4: So. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like I, cause I, that's, you hear that all the time, right? Oh, all comedians are tortured. And even though I did just speak to like having maybe a difficult upbringing, that's just specific to me. Like the truth is, is yeah. that like I, I really reject the idea that all comedians need to have some like deep inner pain that they are, you know, working through in their comedy. Like, yes, it is very true of some comedians, but it's also not true of others. And it's just, it's, it's just like human beings. It's true of some human beings and it's not necessarily of others. And there's really no like through line that I see in my time working in comedy uh, that everyone uh, possesses or not. And, And really all it is is like, the only thing I can look at and it's not like a tortured background, it's more like every every good comedian I know is just like a person who is like inquisitive and interested in other people and observing the world. And sometimes when you deal with trauma, like you become attuned to like observing the world very specifically because it's a defense mechanism. And so maybe that can contribute to it. But it's also just sometimes there are comedians and comedy writers I know who are incredibly talented and had Perfect upbringings and don't have much inner trauma, and they're just like really, you know, wonderful and and have a talent. And so it's kind of like it's not really. I, I'm curious, like where that uh, yeah. stereotype came from.
0: Yeah, I don't, don't know. know. It seems like it seems like a way to kind of build cred. Comedy is like a very like stand up comedy is like it's hard. You know, for people who understand what it actually entails, it's very, very hard, and it's very, very vulnerable. But if you're just an observer watching a stand up com- like comedian, you're like, "Well, that's easy. You just have a microphone <laughs> and you're just talking so I think I sometimes it might be just people trying to like prove that they're like hard asses to an audience. Yeah, skeptical. yeah.
4: Right. Right. That's interesting. Right. It's like, cause a lot of people are like, Oh my gosh, I can do that. I could get up on stage and tell a joke or I could write." And so it's a way to be like, no, no, this is a real, this is actually a really hard job. Right. Partially because of my inner trauma. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I loved about hacks is that but
0: every main character is deeply fucked up. Like I imagine, and I'm I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you like shit talk anybody that helped you develop the show. But I'd imagine <laughs> that at some point, at some point you got some notes that were like, can you make this person more likable? Can you do this? Like that's the classic note that you get if you make a female yeah. character that is in any way unlikable. Um, and yeah. in writing two characters that are complicated and fully human, and so, thus, in their own way, unlikable, like every human being. um, Did you ever feel kind of laid bare by that? And did you ever feel like you needed to tell people in your life that, like, Ava's attitude toward this person is not reflective of my attitude toward you? Like, did you ever have to tell, uh-huh. like, Travis,
2: like, yeah. look, Ava, <laughs> Ava hates men, but it doesn't have anything to, to, uh, to do with you. I
4: haven't I haven't talked to Travis in years. Making this show has been so funny. <laughs> Travis. Who, who knows where Travis is you know, it's interesting. Like, this is gonna, I don't want to sound like Pollyanna about it, but like the network and the studio, like we never got one single note about likability or anything like that. And and that is like a testament to the people at HBO Max and Universal. Like they were so supportive of this idea from day one. And sure, there were questions specifically about Ava, like about like honing her character a little more and like trying to understand her. Cause I think Deborah was always so clear on the page and maybe Ava needed a little fine tuning, but to, to their credit, they, we never got a note about like make her more likable or, or anything like that. And it's interesting. It was only, and I, to be honest, like, I don't think we ever thought about that writing it um, because we, And this is something we took from Broad City and this is kind of, it's like we were just like writing them as real people. Like we felt like that was always our North Star, make them feel like real grounded people. And it was only in, you know, the reception has been like really lovely and I I try not to read too much criticism because I think it can like seep into what you're doing creatively and mess you up. But like it was only in the response to it that I did see if sometimes people, their reaction to Ava, like being unlikable, I was like, Oh, interesting. We're like still having this conversation, uh, which I didn't necessarily think we were, but we are. Um, and, but like it's, so I know that we were very like blessed in our process of developing this show that we didn't ever have to adjust that way, but, it's also just a weird it, it is like I hate to I it has been a lesson in like oh right it is still a situation where duh should have known this like male characters can get away with so much more than a than a woman can um which is which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Bad, one might say. Bad
1: <laughs> <laughs> a
0: word. Um do people assume that you are like Ava? Or that you were like Deborah? Like, has anybody asked you?
4: No one who's ever seen how I dress thinks I'm a Deborah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Some people were like, oh, Ava reminds me of you in certain ways. Or, oh, is Ava based on you? Or is Ava based on the Chia? Or is Ava based on... And, and you know, like, Deborah is is... Her, you know we we talk about the three of us like are you an Ava or deborah and we we've decided that Paul is a Deborah, I'm an Ava, and that she is a deborah ava hybrid um but but no, no one ever was like, oh are you Ava's not based on any one person she's not even based on you know it's not like she's even an amalgamation. she's just sort of like I think what we've absorbed over years and years of working in comedy and and a certain type of person but But yeah, certainly some people were like, is this supposed to be you? And it's like, no, I don't want to write about me. (laughs) Uh, I'm not a good main character.
0: Uh, Um, So pivoting really quick. Uh, One thing about the relationship in Hacks is that everyone who works for Deborah is sort of a family and they just fall into that pattern. Like they have familial interactions with each other. But one thing I see discussed a lot – is when jobs present themselves as like, we're Mm -hmm. a family here.
2: Um, Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Which is, I think it's a red flag. Um, Alyssa, as as somebody who's been in like management and stuff, um, do you consider jobs that call
1: themselves a family to be like a red flag and why? Oh God, totally. You know, I think that there are (laughs) jobs, I think there are jobs that force some sort of bond, Right. You know, like like there is not uh, there is not a world in which I would have made it through the White House without Dan Pfeiffer. There are only so many people who can see you get screamed at by your boss and understand that the solution to the current problem, which is you bursting into tears in Brazil, is giving you an (laughs) iPad with Angry Birds on it and being like, list, here you go." And I'm sure it's a skill that's like super helpful with his kids now. But um, jobs jobs that present themselves that way, it's like, <laughs> what are you hiding? It's like, yeah. it's like, a, yeah. like, are you a cult? You know, are you saying that you're a family because you're going to ask me to do a bunch of shit that I'm going to be like underpaid for? Like, why, why are you presenting it this way? So yeah, I do think, I think that there are jobs that you be, you, you develop a family bond, but I think companies are places that present themselves as like we're a family. I don't know, it's a little shady. It feels it feels Duggar, you know, like TLC, like the Duggars or something. I don't know.
3: Growing growing up Mexican, there's a big difference between your family and between any other (laughs)
1: family
3: that presents. Yeah. I definitely grew up very skeptical of any group or any school or any, even like a bunch of friends that were like, we're basically sisters. We're not though. Um, there's a big difference. (laughs) I mean, I I think that there is your chosen family for sure. That's an important distinction to make. But yeah, I'm, I'm super wary of any workplace environment. Also that makes it too easy to want to be there 24 seven. Like yeah. I don't need a sofa, refrigerator, dance hall, you know, pub, whatever in my workspace. I like to be able to go home at a certain time of day and eat my dinner and watch my hacks and call my <laughs> <the wire.
4: laughs> Do you and, and like I am so I've only really I mean, i worked in like restaurants and stuff when I was like in my 20s. But like because I've been in the entertainment industry now for so long, does it seem like it's an entertainment industry specific thing where jobs are like we're a family or do you think that it's like across all industries?
0: Um, I think that it is it. it in like newsrooms. So like I've worked in newsrooms and yeah. sometimes like newsrooms, like I remember early Buzzfeed culture was sort of like red flag. we all, uh, we all hang out together all the time. We've yeah, got a, we've got a yeah. ping pong table and shitty health insurance. Like that sort <laughs> yeah. of, that sort of thing. Startup culture I think is really, uh, is really uh, prone to doing that. Any place that doesn't pay people enough, but wants people to be really, really devoted, not commensurate to how much they're being compensated, I think
4: it tends to do right, that. Right, right. Um, like so, PR. Uh, literally every workplace
1: in America is what you're yes, saying. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Three yeah. cold brew is the biggest flag on earth.
3: Oh, oh my yes. <laughs> if there's anything on tap, anything on tap.
4: Yeah, when I worked it. in a restaurant in New York, it was, hey, free beer, whatever you want. it. now I'm like, oh, right. I had like a decaying tooth in my head because I couldn't go to the dentist, <laughs> but I had free beer on tap or whatever. <laughs>
2: Jesus.
0: We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Jen and Grace will still be here, and we're going to do a quick Sanity Corner. And welcome back. We are almost at the end of the show, but not quite it is time for Sanity Corner. No housekeeping this week, so let's just get right into it. Uh, Sanity Corner. Here's what is keeping me sane/slash delighted. I am watching the show The Sopranos for the first ah. time. <laughs> for the first time, and wow. you know, it, for years I got people, you know, kind of being skeptical of my not watching The Sopranos, and I'm really glad I waited as long as I did. Because I waited long enough for Tony's shirts to be hilarious (laughs)
1: and Carmella's
0: style to be iconic. Like I waited long enough for enough time to have elapsed that the fashion cycle has now made her sort of like – kitschy cool awesome and um, that show is I think one of the funniest comedies of all time it is very violent so funny it is so so funny funny. hilarious it is like some of the best writing I've ever seen I was skeptical because some of the fans are like real pieces of shit and got like (laughs) the wrong message they're sort of like the same people who watched Breaking Bad and the lesson from that was like Skylar sucks you know like (laughs) yeah 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 that was the fandom that sort of turned me off to the Sopranos but we're watching it I think we're in like season three now and it It is such a goddamn delight. It is such a great commentary on the decline of American masculinity. Um, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I I, uh, endorse The Sopranos. I'm the one millionth person.
4: Endorse uh, do you? Do, do you have things that have like been spoiled for you, like because it's been out for yeah. hundred and six years or whatever? Like, do you th- do you know what's coming just by absorbing it through the culture? Or are you kind of like, I think I'm good, spoiler free?
0: I know how it ends. Uh, I know how it sure. ends with journey, um, and I know <laughs> right. I, I know a couple of the characters that I've gotten really attached to get killed. Um, and uh, you know, I still, in, I still am enjoying because again, like fake people, so I'm not getting like that wrapped up emotionally. in the right, fact that right. there's this this one female character who is excellent, who starts, she's you know who I'm talking about, who gets
4: whacked yes. in in a yep, forthcoming yep, yep. episode. Um, okay, I'm, you've got the lingo down. You're really watching the show. I am really, <laughs> really watching yeah.
0: the show, and I'm just really enjoying <laughs> fake Jersey Italian <laughs> stuff. It's it's great. Um, Alyssa, what is your sanity corner this week?
1: You guys, my sanity corner is that I'm on the no train. I'm just like saying no to everything for the rest of the summer. (laughs) I've had enough. My email, my inbox is too full. I have spent 18 months of COVID trying to prove to the world I'm a fucking functioning adult who has kept it going. And I just don't want to anymore. So if you don't get an email back from me, like wait until after Labor Day, because I am just, I'm on an email slowdown and I'm on the no train. And I have to tell you yesterday, I really, no, it wasn't yesterday. It was this weekend. I was like, this is it. I'm not, I'm not even looking at my email. It was, so you guys, I was like free. I couldn't believe it. I can't believe how fucking clogged my brain has been. So I'm trying to de- declutter. I love it. My brain. I don't give a shit about how cluttered my inbox is. It's just, I'm out. Mastro out.
0: I feel like that is a book proposal. Just yeah. have, write a book called No.
1: And no, uh, Mastro out. Mastro has leaned all the way out for the rest of yeah. the summer.
3: You know what? I, I, I'm, I, man, I agree with that train so hard. I'm also on that train for uh, social events, in person things. I, Guess I what? You know it. what?
1: You know what? COVID's taught me if I don't want to go to something I'm invited to, I'm just gonna say no nicely. <laughs> exactly. I'm not gonna go Absolutely. and then dread it the night before and be like, why did I say yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm on this no train with you.
0: I've been, TV, pong, pong. I've been saying no too. I've gotten, um, you know, t- doing TV stuff is kind of a lot of work for just a little bit of not, I'm not talking like TV writing. I'm talking about like a TV hit on a news program. Yeah. It's yeah. like sometimes a lot of work for a little payoff. And if I just, yeah. if I just am like, I just don't think I, I don't want to rearrange my schedule for an entire day around the fact that I have to sit there in full makeup and wait for a five minute hit.
3: It's, it feels great to say no.
0: I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of us. I really love that. Grace, what is your sanity corner this week?
3: Uh, guys, uh, Alyssa Monaco definitely knows this as I'm sure most of our listeners do. It's tomato season. <laughs> we, have, we have but a few precious days, maybe weeks left of tomato season. So I'm gonna highly recommend that you do what I do, which is not only embracing tomatoes in all ways, shapes, and forms, but in a specific way that I'm about to tell you guys, which is uh, in the form of a, an heirloom tomato tart, Okay. It's real. It's 30 second recipe. Here we go. Uh, take, um, uh, uh, flaky crust. What's that flaky crust? Not phyllo dough, but the other kind that you roll out. Like pastry, the stuff what that I, you
0: make spanakopita pastry. out of.
3: Exactly. Okay. okay. Roll it out. Put some delicious heirloom tomato slices on top with a little salt and pepper. Put it in the oven for 30 minutes. Bring it out. Put some fresh basil with some ricotta, thyme and honey on it. Wow. That's Guys, it's me saying it's delicious. It's heavenly. Highly recommend it. It's tomato season. What are we waiting for? Celebrate Um, the tomato. Yeah, celebrate Celebrate the tomato. tomato. You know
0: what else? It is also uh, New Mexico green chili season. If you go to the grocery store now and you happen to live close enough to New Mexico that they're shipping trucks to you, um, definitely buy a giant bag of New Mexico green chilies. Do not settle for Colorado green chilies. I'm sorry. I love you, Colorado, but New Mexico (laughs) green chilies are better. Um, you can just roast them in your oven, get them a little blistered and freeze them and use them for mm. the rest of the year. Use them in soups, put them in eggs. They're fucking delicious. Seasonal Amazing. fruits and vegetables. Great sanity corner. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Jen, do you want to bring us
4: back yes, home? I sure do. Um, okay. So Aaron, I apologize because I don't know if this is a pregnancy safe recommendation. <laughs> okay. So you're going to have to wait, but- I've been really enjoying um, a what is called a cannabis-infused social tonic. They're called cans. Have you guys heard of these? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. I love these. I'm not trying to get them to send me free uh, containers of them, but, you know, if they have. Them, just kidding. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. That's not what this is for. But they're great. They're like – there are like two milligrams THC, four milligrams CBD, great flavors. You have one, you're feeling great. It's like having like a glass of wine or something, but it like, I don't know, alcohol, I, I guess I'm, I think I'm now one of those lame people where alcohol gives me like a headache the next morning. If I've had more than the uh, two, what if I was like, if I've had more than 10 glasses in a night, no, if I've had, <laughs> if I've had more than like one glass, I think it gives me a headache, um, And so I love canned. They don't give me, they just like are a really good chill way to relax at night. And I love them and they're great. And I like the pineapple jalapeno flavor the best.
0: Ooh, yes. Yes. That sounds like a pregnancy safe flavor combination, definitely, yeah. but not I mean, a pregnancy safe. I mean, this safe. is, you're going to
4: be like, you're an absolute idiot. You can't have any THC when you're pregnant, right? Not a drop. Not a drop. I mean, I can, but my
0: baby's going to end up with flippers. <laughs> right. And you, <laughs> you I And mean, you don't want
4: that. And you don't want that.
0: No. I mean, it would probably be a pretty good swimmer. Yeah, but They like, could definitely go in, like, American you know, talent mm-hmm.
4: or whatever. It's something to think about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but like you know, where am I going to be able to find ones? <laughs> sure, sure. Like yeah, flipper yeah. arm sizes okay. and everything. You probably
4: like need less aquaforte though,
0: <laughs> That's or probably more. true. less aquaforte necessary. <laughs> Many more.
4: Okay. Well, when when, um, when baby arrives, then then you can try pineapple. Oh home yeah,
0: I am. celebrating when baby arrives by doing things that I couldn't do before baby arrived like sleep no that's not happening that's definitely not happening and that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Hysteria thank you to Jen Statsky for joining us thank you to Grace Parajani for joining us and thank you to Don Hucklebridge for joining us thank you Alyssa for being my ride or die and thanks to all of you the listeners. There will be more Hysteria for you next week. From planet, this hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Narmel Konian and Magic Root. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week.